Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. to start in Toronto, Canada this week, Kartik, uh, the USA performance against Canada, a lot to talk about, but where I want to start off with is talking about uh, the commentary by Ian Dark and Taylor Twelman on ESPN2 on this Tuesday night broadcast, and uh, I was really impressed. I mean, this is something I'm not surprised with Ian Dark. Um, he has more of a conversational tone in terms of his commentary style, um, but in terms of uh, Ian Dark's critical analysis of this U.S. performance, uh, and, not, and not just this performance, but many performances leading up to this, and then Taylor Twelman uh, adding his critical analysis. The, I mean, it, the two of them work really well together and really honing in on the things that they're seeing, which is the same things that a lot of the viewers are seeing. And uh, oftentimes, the only, the only way I can compare it to is to John Strong and Stu Holden, John Strong, I think, is one of the best uh, U.S. soccer commentators, but his style is very stats-heavy and doesn't lend itself to kind of very short, concise um, uh, discussion or, or analysis. It, it's almost a, an all-or-white style where it just, it just talks and talks. Uh, and while Stu, Stu Holden has some really good analysis, I don't think he works as well with John Strong as Taylor works with Ian Dark. What, what's your perspective on that? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think the thing that, to me, is pretty apparent is uh, the lack of consistency in Stu Holden's performance as a uh, co-commentator, because I think he's very good uh, when put in other circumstances, right? And I think he's very good in the studio when he's on uh, TNT, when it's not a clown show, right? A lot of times it's a clown show there, but his analysis is solid. His analysis and the way he analyzes the match when the United States is playing, I think it's quite different mm-hmm. because of the type of setup and interaction he has with Strong and the sort of uh, narratives and discussions John Strong are pushing. So this is a very, very valid point you're making, Chris, because I think um, what we see with Taylor Twelman is a consistency, whether he's doing a uh, European qualifier, whether he's doing a Nations League match, whether he's doing MLS, whether uh, MLS is with John Champion. Uh, but oftentimes uh, the European matches are with John Champion or um, – or um, Adrian Healy, or whether he's doing a U.S. match, which is almost always with Ian Dark. So uh, there, there is there is that, and I think that uh, one it's because Twelman is the best in the business in this country in terms of being a co-commentator. But it's also I think because of uh, who you're paired with, and in John Strong's case, his style is just very doesn't lend itself to the sort of deep analysis we know Stu Holden can give. It would be wonderful to see Ian Dark and Stu Holden together to see how that uh, impacts or changes Stu Holden's style a little bit, or, or maybe it's a little bit more uh, of a better fit there. I mean, again, nothing wrong, nothing wrong with John Strong. It's just a completely different style. 
but but that's the thing though too with Stu Holden too. I think it, when he does U.S. games, uh, what I find is that he internalizes a lot of his comments, or it feels like that way because there's a lot of silences, there's a lot of just gaps of knowing no one talking. And um, I think in the comparison with Taylor Twelman, Twelman, I mean, by by no means is perfect. I mean, I mean, every commentator or every co-commentator, uh, nobody's perfect in this world. But with uh, T- Taylor Twelman, instead of having those kind of really silent pauses where there's nothing going on, he's not saying anything. Twelman's adding kind of his analysis, and for the most part, his analysis is spot on in terms of you know what are we doing? What, what's what's we're in a crisis here that this U.S. team. And this has been this has been coming for a long, long time, Kartik. I think you and I both have seen this in terms of the U.S. team not making a lot of the youth the youth squad not making a lot of Olympics and other big tournaments. Um, a lot of I mean mistakes happening within the executive side in terms of uh, you mean uh, go ahead uh, voting in uh, Carlos Cordero. I mean a lot of uh, financial accountant bean counters uh, that are leading this organization. And I think this we saw this culmination. We saw it two years ago, missing out in the World Cup. We saw it on Tuesday night in terms of just uh, this team is completely out of, out of their depth. And this is against Canada. I mean, f- fair play to Canada too in terms of how well they've progressed and how well that those players have done in Major League Soccer and, and some of them in, in Europe. Um, but they they have a fire in their belly. I mean, the U.S. does not. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's also. Um, uh, teams and you know this will anger a lot of u.s fans who have this american exceptionalism type uh view but i think it's also a regression to the mean and a uh, uh and and a uh, and canada evolving because uh quite frankly canada has always had really good players and i think about uh, even 10 to 15 years ago if you look player for player on the team you had the uh, D. Rowe and Julian de Guzman and Paul Stelteri and Rob Friend and Atiba Hutchinson and all these guys that were playing very well in Europe and I, I know there's more that I'm I'm, uh, I, I'm forgetting and they just never were uh, as good as they should be uh, given the, the the parts they had now the United States in that era I think were probably better than the sum of their parts in that era and the, and the era prior to that where the U.S. generally punched above its weight, had um, a core of solid players that were playing their trade in Europe and some very good players in Major League Soccer, but didn't have the depth in their player pool to justify consistently getting out, uh, winning CONCACAF, won the hex three straight times, and getting out of the group stage of the World Cup, which the U.S. more often than not was doing in that period. Then toward the end of that period, the U.S. was consistently being bailed out by one or two individual performances. Uh, most notably, I think, in both the 2014 World Cup and 2016 Copa America, it was Clint Dempsey at the tail end of his career continuing to bail the U.S. out time in, again, time in, time out. And that masked a lot of the problems, deeper problems with the U.S. But I think that Canada and the U.S. should be fairly... Uh, close in terms of uh, where they are in, in the footballing world, and they haven't been. That having been said, there's no question the U.S. has regressed. There's no, there are no Clint Dempsey's in this U.S. team. There are no Steve Terundolos in this U.S. team. So, uh, and uh, in 2006, in the 2006 to I would say 2011, 12 time period, there were there was a, a full first 11 of really good U.S. players and guys sitting on the bench that you had some confidence in. And, and I think about uh, you have Bocanegra, Demerit, Gooch, and Chirundolo on the back line. All four of those guys are far better than any defensive option the U.S. has now. Um, and for watchers of the Premier League, it's, it's a little bit of a head-scratcher that uh, DeAndre Yedlin is consistently better um, 
in in club play, domestic club play in England than he is with the U.S. men's national team. That also might be a reflection of the the camp, the culture, the maybe the toxicity when players of his caliber come back and play for the United States because he's coming off a match. Uh, we didn't do a show last week, but he's coming off a match for Newcastle against Manchester United where I would have given him an 8 or 9 out of 10. He was that good. Wow. Comes to the U.S. and has, what would you say, from Tuesday, 2 out of 10 maybe mm-hmm. for him. So uh, and this is something consistently we've seen with Yedlin. I'm not picking on him. I just think he's a very good example because I think despite being on a poor Premier League club, whether it was Sunderland or Newcastle over the course of the last four or five seasons, he's generally played uh, for a team for a relegation level team very well. Uh, been one of the better players on on both of those two teams. Now, when he comes to play for the U.S., he's not very good, and he's consistently making errors. So, yeah, I think I think there's something cultural in the in the U.S. setup. Well, I, I think part of it is just the depth. So, so for Newcastle United, in terms of uh, him playing in that position, and uh, I mean, he's he's fearing for his position. There's, there's players underneath him that that could easily slot in and and take over that position. Same thing with. Um, with Christian Pulisic too, is that both Christian Pulisic and uh, Yedlin are probably two names, two of the first names you'd put on on a team sheet uh, for the United States national team. But there's no guarantee that they're going to be playing for the club team because there's a lot of players that are competing for the same spots. And with the U.S., uh, I, I would I would actually argue Yedlin has more competition with the U.S. than he does with Newcastle. Okay, yeah, okay. right back. Okay, uh, but. But, but, like, but Pulisic, absolutely, you're cor- absolutely right. correct on that. He has no competition in the U.S. team, none whatsoever, not, nothing even close. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, my my take on this was that in terms of just those that that depth and and, and just the quality level on this U.S. men's national team as a whole, to me, is one of the weakest uh, squads since I don't know early nineties. I mean, it's it's I can't yeah, yeah. I can't remember a time. I mean, there's so few positives to come out of this game. And the one star, the one player that you kind of, a lot of people put it on the pedestal and say, hey, this is the greatest player, greatest U.S. men's national uh, uh, player of all time or one of the of all time. And you know, I mean, he's going through a, a really poor run of form too. So this is a really poor situation. I, I have to say there's a lot of just general bias because even MLS watchers uh, and people who prop up MLS, when Alfonso Davies was with Vancouver, year and a half ago, and I was watching this guy in MLS, I said, oh my gosh, I think this guy is probably the best player, is going to be the best player from the U.S. or Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the pushback was enormous, even from MLS people saying, oh, but he's not at Pulisic's level. And, uh, and, and all this, that, and the other thing, just really, oh, you have to remember, uh, he's playing, he's, he, he's just maybe a flash in the pan type thing, which you, know, you could argue maybe Pulisic was. Uh, but uh, now, a year and a half later, Davies has evolved to a point where I think he's probably a more effective player than Pulisic. Certainly was in that match. And while he doesn't start for Bayern, and, and again, I give Pulisic a lot of credit. At 18 and 19, he was starting for uh, for Borussia Dortmund. At 20, he was not starting anymore. And at 21, he's now really not playing very much for Chelsea. But um, Davies has forced his way into that Bayern team to where he is one of their options off the bench. And when you consider the depth of that Bayern team um, and how he's having to compete for that spot, that's that's really helping Canada. So it, it's funny because I've always, and, and you I know are the same way, Chris, have said there's this pro-MLS and anti-MLS uh, thing that goes on. And, and I think there still is some of that, but I'm finding that uh, if it's not an American player, sometimes the MLS fans uh, then reflexively just defend the American player, even if it's a non-MLS guy. Mm-hmm. So I think there's some sort of deep-seated 
long-term insecurity just in American soccer fandom and the U.S. Uh, soccer media who um, have now, once again, consistently shown that they will underrate the opposition the U.S. faces and overrate American players. That's one consistency. Mm-hmm. We, even though they've gone from being big cheerleaders two years, two and a half years ago saying in 2017 when I was sounding alarm bells during that Gold Cup, oh, nothing's wrong. Bruce has got it all figured out. We're going to qualify easily. It's all Klinsman's fault to now saying all oh, the things a shambles, Halter has to go. Uh, this thing's a disaster. But the one thing they will consistently do is overrate the level of American players uh, and underrate the level of the players that the U.S. faces. And it's tough to get serious analysis when you do that, which is why going back to your initial point, Chris, I'm not just saying this to say this, I'm saying this to make a point. Taylor Twelman is very different than the classic American U.S. national team uh, beat writer or a person who, who tweets about the team or covers the team. He has... Uh, done his research, his homework on the opposition. In the case of Canada, obviously, since he's MLS broadcaster, he knows a lot of the players. Uh, but he doesn't play that game of underrating the opposition and overrating American players. So I think that's part of the... And, and Ian Dark is a perfect foil for him with that. So I think that's part of it, is that Twelman doesn't fall into this trap of consistently overhyping American players. Uh, unlike... I, I don't want to give a number, but maybe I should. So it, unlike maybe 90% of the other people who, who cover and follow the U.S. men's national team in a prominent role in the media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, the winners in this uh, in this game from the U.S. perspective, I mean, the only two winners were, were Ian Dark and, and Taylor Twelman and, and, and ESPN in terms of the quality of the broadcast, in terms of their analysis. And uh, I, I really feel that if this was a Fox broadcast that um, – you mean we would not get that same level of critical analysis? Yes, we would get some, um, but the feeling I get is Twelman really, you mean, just shares his honest feedback, his honest criticism, doesn't hold back, and and that's the feeling I get when I'm, I'm watching a, a Fox broadcast is that, you mean that they're thinking World Cup, they're thinking Gold Cup, they're thinking all the other tournaments that they have the um, the rights to, and thinking okay, let's not let's not throw the U.S. down too hard because we want viewers to keep on coming back to these other broadcasts, these other tournaments that we have the rights to. The last thing we want to do is is, is kind of kill in, in quotation marks the U.S. men's national team. Well, with ESPN, I mean ESPN has um, you mean a broadcast now and again of a U.S. game. Uh, doesn't have the rights to, I mean, th- these other big competitions that Fox has, and and that's part of the equation, I believe, is that uh, that's why you don't get that critical analysis, and that's why, in many ways, that uh, if you look at the TV ratings for uh, USA games, men's, of course, um, on Fox versus ESPN, ESPN is is usually about double the amount of view- viewers that Fox has, so it's it, this is not about beating up on Fox is more in terms of looking at ESPN and how they're analyzing the games and critiquing and offering their expertise, which is really the reason that we turn on the volume when we're watching a game. Otherwise, we'd just mute it. We can mute it and just watch the game happen. But we turn the volume up because we want to hear the analysis. And um, yeah, so hats off to ESPN for, for a really stellar job there too. So, Kartik, uh, this is the time of the year that uh, we put back on our T-shirts that say, uh, I survived the international break uh, from the past two weeks. I've been around the world uh, through my TV set and through streaming, watching games um, from the European continent, South American continent, you name it. Uh, the game, yeah, I saw a lot of games, a lot of them were on ESPN or ESPN3 or uh, oftentimes on uh, Tuduene. 
Um, the one game for me that was my favorite of all of them was uh, Ukraine against Portugal. This was a really, really good open-ended game, back and forth, um, great skill by both teams, and um, ended up being a 2-1 victory for Ukraine, which was uh, a huge victory for them. And uh, yeah, really enjoyed that one. What about you? Anything that stood out that you saw from this past week, from whether at the international break or, or elsewhere? I didn't see any football other than uh, the U.S. game uh, and uh, well, and the U.S.-Cuba game. Uh, I was traveling with Miami FC, uh, also had tr- a lot of uh, training sessions and academy sessions. I actually ended up watching most of the Canada match on DVR. I missed the first half. But, uh, yeah, so we had our game in Atlanta, which was actually quite good, the Atlanta SC versus Miami uh, FC match. Unfortunately, it didn't stream live, uh, although I believe it is on demand now on my Kuju. Uh, But, no, I didn't see anything else. Although I I have to say I thought that uh, uh, the U.S. We're talking a lot about the U.S. I did enjoy the performance from Canada. I have to to point this out, Mm -hmm. that I thought – they were, and I've watched the whole 90 minutes because I DVR'd the match. I thought they were very good uh, in the first half. And I thought in the second half they were just clinical and, and uh, outstanding. And, and the, um, the thing that really gets me about this is I've heard so much from people who, who've covered women's football and have been around women's football about John Herdman being the wrong manager for the Canadian women's team and, and how um, – and Ivy, I think, even echoed it myself that, oh, well, I, I think the Canadian women have a have a, a better way of playing, even if the results aren't better since he, he was uh, kicked uh, when he since he was moved to the men's side. But the men's side to me were very refreshing. I, granted, I haven't watched much of them, but uh, I enjoyed watching Canada. I, I maybe I, I hesitate to say that, knowing that there'll be a backlash because all it all has to be about how terrible the U.S. was. But I enjoyed that. Uh, the Cuba-U.S. game I didn't really enjoy. Uh, it was a, it, it was just a, a kick around for all intents and purposes. And think, once again, you have a, a, a situation where um, the U.S. had a false and the American commentator outside of Twelman and the American media, uh, soccer media, had this absolute false sense of security and hubris after that Cuba match going into the uh, – a match in Canada, which on paper was always going to be very tough in Toronto, and uh, which, as it played out, was a uh, 2-0 was a flattering scoreline for the United States, wasn't it? I mean, it could have oh, very yeah. easily been 4-0. Four, four yeah, easily, yeah. easily, yeah. Uh, yeah, the one thing about this too, Kartik, is that um, the last time the U.S. men's national team played an away game, do you know when that was? An away game. Of, whew, they've had all these friendlies at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, at France in uh, tw- and at Ireland in I would say that was June of 2018. Is that correct? Well, yeah, they had they had a friendly. I think it was um, November 2018. So it's it's been almost 12 months that they've been okay. playing home games, and this is part of the equation too. Because you mean the US, you mean the US Soccer Federation missing out on the World Cup, uh, missing out on all the the millions that would have come in from sponsorship deals and uh, ticket revenue and other 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 sources. And um, are playing catch up. They're, they're play, figuring out, okay, what can we do to, I mean, just be, be, make those cash registers ring. And so for the past twelve months, you've had a string of friendlies, you've had a Nations League game, you've had all sorts of these games uh, at home, just trying to create as much revenue as possible, and to the de- detriment of the U.S. men's national team. I think that's another reason why. I mean, they should be playing against higher level competition, playing away in. I mean. Um, you mean arenas or stadiums that are not as friendly? Just you mean not having the the comfort of playing at home, 
and and that's part of it too in terms of uh, um, something that that which I, I couldn't believe. I was like, is it? I, I don't understand. I, I, and I'm sorry. Maybe we're getting a little off topic here, but I'm just going to throw this out there for the listeners. Uh, why American fans and 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 a lot of the American media insist on saying, well, the Gold Cup is like being away from home because there's so many of these Central American and Caribbean countries and Mexico that have uh, fan bases that show up at the stadiums. I, I have to tell you this because I just am coming off a road trip with Miami FC, and I tra- I've traveled with the team a lot the last two years. Used to travel with the Fort Lauderdale Strikers, etc. The match itself and the quote hostility of of the crowd is only one aspect of traveling and playing away from home. It is one. It is it's a it's a prominent aspect, but I'd say it's like twenty percent of it. Eighty percent of it is the transportation, the training grounds, the hotels you stay in, mm-hmm. the uh, what you do uh, during the day. And when you are playing in the United States and you are traveling in the United States and you are staying in American hotels and you're training at American training grounds, you are not away from home. Period. End of story. So, Chris, your point is they have not played an away match in eleven months, and that is correct. So those who say, oh, well, they played Mexico in Soldier Field and it's Chicago, so they're more Mexican fans, that, that, that's 20% of it. That's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. The other 80% is they were in the United States and they were at home. Right. They didn't have to travel, et cetera, et cetera, et yeah. cetera. And in the comforts of, you mean, first-class hotels and yep. you mean, those types of things. So, so two more things real fast, Kartik, before we move on, is that um, I did finish watching Take Us Home. Uh, Leeds United, which is the Amazon Prime documentary series. Oh, no series. spoilers! No spoilers! No spoilers! Me, no spoilers! <laughs> I, I will I say because I am going to finish it this weekend. I, I will say I, I, I'll add my kind of just analysis. I won't, I won't, no spoilers, but my analysis is that uh, while the first episode hooked me in, and I thought, okay, hey, this is Sunderland till I die, part two. This is really good. Of uh, obviously not dealing with relegation, but. Um, the rest of the episodes, I, I knew what was happening in the season. I knew uh, the things that were going to, you know, where Leeds United ended up. So as the episodes went on, I, I was less and less interested. So, so, so to me, it was a great documentary. I'd recommend it, but uh, it's I think for a lot of people, it'll be hard to see the the way all all the way through till the end. And then the second thing is, is that I haven't finished it yet, but the Diego Maradona. A documentary that aired on uh, HBO about two weeks ago. I've watched the first half of it, and um, it's it's amazing. It's almost like a collection of home movies that are edited together uh, into one long film. And um, I I have no idea how how the 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 actual director got his hands on all of this. Uh, I mean, raw footage. Uh, from his life in Napoli, you mean from from Spain into Napoli, playing for Napoli. It's just it's it's amazing. So um, and also even the World Cup too has a lot of World Cup footage in there too. But I'm looking forward to watching the, the second half of that. It's uh, it's pretty long, but it, it's it's holding my attention. All right, Kartik, let's move on to uh, TV streaming news. Yeah, so let's uh, kick off this week with the Flow Sports news, which uh, was met with elation throughout MLS fandom. DC United has dumped Flow Sports. Uh, they do not have a um, a replacement, but they streamed their last regular season match free of charge uh, on their website, and uh, uh, they will do something which is not Flow Sports for 2020. Uh, and uh, in related news, uh, Flow Sports have rebranded. Yeah, rebranded with, with a new logo. Um, it looks a little bit different um, across all of their sports, um, I, I guess, platforms that they have. They have wrestling and they have a whole bunch of other, other sports, too, that they cover. The interesting thing about this one is that uh, I believe it's Cincinnati that still has um, a deal with Flow Sports. Uh, yes. That's continuing. 
And uh, I think the elation that a lot of people felt or heard or expressed about the DC United deal was uh, saying, okay, hey, thank God. Uh, we thought that this would be across MLS, MLS, that Flow Sports would get involved in, in a lot of other major league soccer clubs. From my understanding, that's still a possibility. That's can, That can still happen. Just because this DC United deal uh, turned sour and there's a lot of issues and you know, with streaming issues and just pricing issues and just the way it was rolled out, um, this doesn't mean that Flow Sports is done with MLS. Um, so we have to keep an eye on that. In the next news, Kartik, is that UEFA has issued the tender for the rights to the UEFA Champions League uh, for seasons 2021 through 2024 in the United States, as well as the Europa League, UEFA Super Cup, and the new UEFA Conference League. Now, the deadline to submit bids to UEFA is early November. This is really interesting, Kartik, because Turner Sports are in their second year of a three-year cycle in terms of the rights that they have. Same thing with Univision 2 and Tudu NA having the rights. But uh, we're expecting an announcement probably by the end of this year who will have the rights for uh, 2021 to 2024. So we might end up in a situation, we will probably end up in a situation where... Uh, there's going to be a long span of UEFA rights that are still left to be fulfilled. Uh, I mean, basically the rest of the season and next season, where we already know who the rights will go to next. So whether that'll be Turner Sports renewing those rights, as well as Univision to do any renewing those rights, we'll have to wait and see. But ESPN has expressed interest in in getting these rights that uh, one of the ESPN um, executives mentioned that uh, UEFA Champions League and UEFA Europa League would be a good complement to the Bundesliga and Serie A that they already have. Um, so this is going to get really, really interesting. The, the other one more thing to add to this, Kartik, is that um, the Europa League and UEFA Conference League in this deal is a completely separate deal than the UEFA Champions League. So in the past, UEFA Champions League and Europa League, Europa League would have been pulled together into the same one. So it's possible that you could have UEFA Champions League going to, say, ESPN Plus and Europa League and UEFA Conference League going being renewed or going to Turner Sports. Um, again, it could be anyone else too. It could be it could be Fox, it could be NBC or somebody else. But uh, some interesting developments there, and uh, we'll be sure to keep uh, keep you guys posted as far as what's happening in that situation. And then, Kartik, uh, Major League Soccer regular season has ended. I, I watched yeah. the uh, decision day. Um, s- same thing with the championship Sunday in the Premier League and decision day in Major League Soccer. I understand why games are played at the same exact time on the final day of the regular season. Um, but I think from a broadcaster perspective, I mean, whether it's the NBC Sports with, with Championship Sunday or um, ESPN with MLS Decision Day, is they should actually hold off on making this decision whether to have a, a whip around show because not, oftentimes, most of the time, those games on those those final days are pretty much meaningless except for maybe one game or maybe, maybe two games at the most. And those are the games that should be featured. Doing the whip around to other games where... It doesn't really even matter, basically, what's happening with the scoreline in those games. To me, is is pretty meaningless, and it devalues the actual uh, production or broadcast itself. But anyway, but but anyway, going back to you, Kartik, with some news. Yeah. So, uh, and MLS year-end ratings are in, and uh, they are 
up 2% uh, year over year on ESPN and ESPN2, uh, average of 246,000 viewers, uh, up 5% to 160,000 viewer average, which is still pretty low on FS1, uh, year, um, year versus year. On Univision and uh, 2DNA and, and the Univision networks, uh, 238,000 uh, viewers down 17% from 2018. So that's a significant drop. Uh, slight uptick on, on ESPN and ESPN2. The FS1 number is higher, but quite frankly, it probably couldn't get any lower. So um, um, as you were, I guess, for the most part. Yeah, the the worrying thing for me here, too, is that this is the very first time, I believe, that the Spanish language uh, viewing average is greater than the English language viewing average uh, for Major League Soccer, which is a big deal. I mean, that's that's a big deal. So Univision gets, um, I mean, what, 238,000 as as an average uh, for viewership here. But but um, but when you take the ESPN and uh, Fox average and then average those together, that's less than two hundred thirty eight thousand. Um, however, Univision's numbers are down seventeen percent. That that's a huge drop. And I realize that Sling TV, Univision not being on uh, Sling TV and Dish is a factor. But at the same time, I I'm thinking that that there's less of an interest among the Spanish language viewing audience to Major League Soccer from last year to this year based on these numbers. And um, maybe they're, they're seeing the league for what it is, where most of the regular season games are practically meaningless until like the, f- the last month or two when um, when you enter kind of the promotion push. Well, not promotion push, playoff push to try to get these teams to actually qualify for the playoffs. But um, it is what it is. Um, according to documents seen by Sports Pro magazine in May 2019, DAZN, which is a, a new streaming service um, that launched in the U.S. recently, they've committed $6.1 billion in rights outlay over a period beyond five years from April 2019. So, so as of right now, DAZN, mostly, it's mostly boxing or uh, MMA uh, fighting mostly in the United States, um, they have acquired the rights in Canada to the Premier League for everything. The only way to see the Premier League in Canada is through DAZN, as well as overseas in, in, in different markets. Um, they have rights from around the world. But this is a big statement. I mean, but my take on this, Kartik, is that that six point one billion that could be th- for things such as, I mean, if they want to go for the NFL. If they want to go for uh, getting more of Major League Baseball, or if they want to go for NHL, some big, huge rights deals. I'm not so sure that this would necessarily uh, include soccer, which it probably will in terms of their bidding. But aggress- aggressively, they have other than the J League, they have no soccer rights. So does it make more sense in the United States market uh, where soccer interest in the the men's national team is fading fast is i mean do they go for these other big traditional american sports yeah probably but i i would also expect a bid for the champions league in the u.s mm-hmm. from them you mentioned the tender uh, just yeah. a few minutes ago i i, I expect the zone to to be a major player on that front uh turner has done some of their work for them by uh, moving so much of the content to streaming already that it would be uh if the product were completely off television linear television it would be a blow but it may not be as big a blow as as if it had come directly from uh the fox years when fox used to show eight to ten matches a match day in the champions league between fox sports regional networks Mm -hmm. and fx and all all the different uh, uh distribution 
channels they have at, at Fox. So uh, this, I, I'd expect them to bid on the Champions League. Uh, La Liga is off the table now. I thought they were going to go in for that. Uh, we know what's happened there. But, uh, yeah, I think there'll be some soccer outlay, but this is more for traditional American sports and quite possibly more uh, MMA, UFC, et cetera. Maybe they're going to make a, a play for UFC to take that away from Fox. Yeah, yeah, but it would definitely put them on the map in the United States among soccer fans if they got the Champions League rights. And, and like you said, too, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm, I'm actually pretty confident that they'll put a bid in for it. Whether or not they'll get it, we'll have to wait and see, especially with ESPN uh, having such deep pockets and spending like crazy on, on, on gobbling up almost everything uh, in terms of soccer rights. Uh, Kartik, one more thing from, from you? Yeah, so um, Telemundo has launched two brand new weekly digital video series on their website. Uh, the first is called Weekly Premiere, which recaps the highlights as well as the analysis uh, about uh, the league. The second is... Uh, La Liga Upside, which discusses the controversial plays around Spain's top flight leagues. Uh, the, the show debuts every thir- Tuesday on the Telemundo Deportes apps as well as YouTube and Instagram. And I think this is interesting because to this point, Telemundo has has, has stuck to covering uh, a lot of football that they have on their airwaves and have just focused on kind of bigger picture events. This is... Um, Part of why 2DNA has been able to gobble up the rights to so many things in Spanish language, right? Telemundo is, fixture, fix, um, is set on big uh, big events, Copa America, Women's World Cup, uh, the, the World Cup itself, etc. And the Premier League, which they have uh, as part of being NBC Sports Group, while 2DNA has gobbled up a lot of other things. But this, uh, this is a good move into the La Liga space uh, for Telemundo. Yeah, it's a it's a big deal too because it's English language. So uh, yeah. the La Liga upside down and weekly premiere are kind of a recap shows uh, that that talk about the, the main talking points. And I don't think they have a lot of highlights. I think it's mostly just discussion. It's aimed at bilinguals. It's aimed at uh, younger, uh, probably I mean twenty somethings. Uh, the content I've watched it. It's, it's not that good, but it does make a big statement that they're going after the English language audience or the bilinguals. And that's something that uh, is a massive deal. Well, that's what 2DNA is doing, right? So yeah. uh, this is this is kind of what we're finding in the millennial demographic among Hispanics and Latinos. And I have, I think I probably have conversations about this demographic almost every day in my professional life, is that uh, their uh, Spanglish, if you want to call it that, or just the mixture of the two languages, is becoming the ling- lingua franca, uh, so to speak. So it's it's almost as if if you want to target that audience, and I think uh, NBC Universal was a little bit ahead of the curve with Mundos, but too early in, in, in that sort of, but they, they saw where uh, that demographic was headed. Uh, this is exactly what you want to do to target them. So, uh, yeah, significant that it's in English and they're targeting bilinguals and, and by and large, younger bilinguals. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and one, one last news item in this section, and that is that uh, Fox has resolved their disputes with Sling TV and the Dish Network, which if you're a Sling TV subscriber or a Dish subscriber, this is great news. Uh, Fox was asking for more money for the um, the rights for Dish and Sling TV to be able to to show FS1, FS2, etc. And um, Dish and Sling TV held firm and uh, were able to have basically Fox uh, step down and, and make make the deal. This is big because with Sling TV, I mean, their focus is on trying to keep the price cost efficient. 
So $25 a month for uh, Sling Orange or Sling Blue. Um, so when it comes up for, I mean, renewal rights with a lot of these broadcasters, um, they often, almost always, really kind of hold firm and say, hey, we're not willing to pay more. Uh, we're trying to keep a, a low-cost streaming service available to you and, uh, and to consumers, and we're not willing to pay more because we have to pass along that money, uh, that, that additional expense to the, the actual uh, streaming subscribers. So, so, But that's good news that uh, that deal has been uh, taken care of. Next up is TV ratings. And again, too, we'll have all of these at worldsoccertalk.com in, in a lot of detail. We won't go through everything. Um, there's been a lot from the past couple of weeks. The, the two numbers I will uh, hone in on are the um, USA against Cuba game on, on FS1 on Friday night. Um, that was a game I watched about two minutes of and saw the score. And I was like, uh, I, I think I joined it mid-game. And I said, this this is yeah, it's not even, not even worth watching. Um, and Kartik, I think, I think uh, same with you. So 157,000 viewers on this one, primetime on Fox, or FS1 on a Friday night. Um, on the Sunday, I think prior to that, it was the US women's national team against Korea in a friendly. That one had uh, more than double the amount of viewers. That one had uh, 319,000 viewers for that game on ESPN. Now, moving on to the listener mailbag. First up is L. Chappie. And uh, El Chappie says, so does anyone, does anybody challenge NBC for the rights to the Premier League? I sure love their coverage and would uh, would hate to see it go elsewhere. But man, ESPN is eating up soccer rights. Also, where does Fox go? Do they now go after La Liga or do they go to South America for their soccer fix? So Fox, Fox is, re- is out of, completely out of the European club soccer game. Uh, all they have left in terms of club soccer is Major League Soccer, and uh, I think it's three clubs in Liga MX um, in terms of their home matches. And so they lost the opportunity to get La Liga, and uh, I don't believe they're going to go to South America. I, I, I believe their strategy is to get out of the soccer game business, except for Major League Soccer and for the big tournaments like you know the World Cup. Uh, Gold Cup, Women's World Cup, etc., and just focus on those big ones and and just leave everything else to to the ESPNs and NBCs and Turners and Bean Sports of the world. And does anybody challenge NBC for the rights to the Premier League? And um, I, I think ESPN. You have to say that ESPN is going to be the uh, the best candidate to do that. Now, if ESPN gobbled up the the rights to the Premier League when they're up for bidding in twenty twenty two, I believe it is. Um, they're not going to be able to show this on television. So it's mostly going to be, if it, if it did acquire the rights, would be mostly on ESPN Plus, except for maybe a game or maybe two, if you're lucky, on one of the, one of the ESPN channels. Yeah, it's a disaster if that happens because, I, again, traveling with uh, Miami FC this week, we went to Atlanta, to Georgia, which is the heart of college football country. I was reminded by virtue of being around the team and and uh, te- television and hotel where there are limited channels, it being an international break. So even though NBC uh, SN is in the television, there's no um, there's no uh, football going on or our football going on. Uh, how incredibly wall to wall the coverages of college football on all ESPN channels, beginning at about nine in the morning on on a Saturday during the fall. 
and there's just no escaping it. And Fox, I, I noticed the Rob Stone show uh, was uh, uh, the show Rob Stone host was on Big Fox, which is probably why we've been able to see some Bundesliga matches on FS1 uh, during uh, uh, from 9:30 to 11:30 Eastern. But then uh, FS1 at 11:30 showed college football for the rest of the day. So it, it's. Um, it would be a problem, I think, in terms of linear television. Now, uh, let's see how the Bundesliga thing works out. You know, there are people who push back against our analysis, Chris, that uh, this was very bad for the, for the league's profile in the United States to jump onto uh, the ESPN networks when you're essentially taking yourself off television, with the exception of probably just a few Bayern Munich games, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to show anyone else on, on ESPN. So that that's, um, I think something that will be tested with the Bundesliga, but um, I would still be very hesitant to see uh, the Premier League land anywhere but uh, NBC in the future. And uh, in terms of packages, we only have one U.S. package, right? There used to be two, which uh, with Satanta and and the Fox split, and then that ended up being ESPN. But uh, they don't want joint bids. We saw that last time between Fox and ESPN. They rejected that joint bid. I hope they keep one unified package and it sticks with NBC because I think even if you have mini packages going to ESPN or Fox, there might be trouble in with preemption and it might be all uh, online. I think for the growth of soccer in the United States, it's so important that um, the Premier League stays on NBC uh, in, in the next right cycle, in the next deal. Reason being is that um, if, for example, if ESPN Plus did get the Premier League rights, is effectively, on the English language side, soccer on television is almost extinct. And it's almost yeah. extinct because you'd, you'd get a game now and again on, on Turner. But even then, it's you mean one game, well, actually two games a, a day, and that's it, really. So effectively, at that point, almost all the, the coverage would be streaming on the English language side. The Spanish language side is a completely different animal. But the, um, the English language side is really important, not just for the Premier League and not just for NBC Sports, I think for the growth of soccer, and I think for, uh, in many ways, you mean in terms of teens and young adults or people getting into soccer, to make it as, as accessible as possible for those people who may not be hardcore soccer fans. And if you run into a total stranger in the street and the person says, I'm a soccer fan, and you ask them, what club do you support? Chances are, if that person is an English language uh, speaker, chances are it'll be... Manchester United, Chelsea, Arsenal, Liverpool. It's going to be a Premier League club. It's Rarely would it be, okay, I, I support Sporting Kansas City or something like that. And, and that's because of the accessibility and that's because of, you mean, the game in terms of the viewership and, and, and how easy it is, how much easier it is to watch a game from the Premier League than it is, say, even Major League Soccer, which is your other big English language um, competitor in the United States. JP says, you guys nailed it regarding the simultaneous MLS matches on the MLS decision day. MLS fans care about their local club and if their team, actually, actually not, not on decision day, just in general, MLS fans care about their local club. And if their team is playing on local television the same time as a national TV game, they're going to obviously choose their local club. There just aren't enough neutral MLS fans around to move the needle on these national broadcasts, especially during American football season. I actually watched most of the Revolution NYCFC game 
uh, recently, no interest in, in, in whatever match was on national television. Perhaps MLS could take a page from the NFL and have all the clubs on national TV during these simultaneous kickoff days. The local clubs would be shown in their local market and the most attractive matchup for areas with no MLS club. Of course, they would need to utilize Big Fox or Big ABC, etc. for this to be feasible with local affiliates. John Average Geek says, I think you are right about the burnout by fans and MLS pays the price being the last games of the day. I know I am paring down my watching just to a few games. Uh, Azer says, uh, or Azer says, uh, Christopher Kartik, you guys didn't talk about the Bundesliga coming to TV in Spanish on ESPN Deporters. I don't speak Spanish, but for most, for, but for some, this is great news. I wish ESPN provided a uh, SAP option like Being Sports does. And let me just pause it for right there. And Azer, um, we didn't talk about it because uh, yes, they do have the rights to the Bundesliga on ESPN Deporters. But we believe it's going to be the same number of games uh, on the English language side that will be available through the Spanish language side per season. So that's going to be four games a season. And like Kartik just said, I mean, most of those games are going to be Bayern Munich games. Uh, you'll probably have De Classica against uh, Dortmund. Uh, and, and it's going to be mostly Bayern Munich games. And um, so those four games will be on Spanish language television as well as English language television, which could be ESPN, could be ESPN2, could be ESPN News. We don't, it could be even ABC if we're lucky, but we don't know yet. Uh, so I'll continue with uh, Azza's uh, message. He says, I will subscribe to ESPN Plus in 2020. You guys also talked about NBC having no competition in 2020 when the Bundesliga leaves Fox Sports. Perhaps the competitor will be ESPN Deportes. I doubt it. Imagine a weekend next season when the Premier League takes a pause and the FA Cup is on. There won't be any soccer on television. Right now, there is at least the Bundesliga to watch. Also, Chris, don't bother watching the Champions League post-game show and TNT. Watch the game, then switch to ESPN FC for an analysis or look for other analysis from UK TV on YouTube. Great podcast. I was listening to it at work and enjoyed it. Some good uh, feedback there, uh, Kartik from Azza. All right, next up is Raymond Orozco. He says, uh, I personally, personally, I'm not a fan of all the teams playing at the same time the last day of the season, there was a lot of dead rubber games and teams playing for nothing, and it showed in the most entertaining uh, game they decided to put on television. It featured very poor teams fighting out, fighting it out for the last playoff spot. Uh, congratulations to Carlos Villa, although a pretty bad Colorado team somewhat cheapened the record. Leo says, in one of the last podcasts you discussed broadcasts of the, of the German leagues in English, on the German football channel on YouTube, they broadcast one game from the third league a week in English. Perhaps this will help fans of German football. Yeah, and Leo, thank you so much for that. I had no idea that um, the third division of the, the Bundesliga, the, the German league, is on YouTube. Hopefully it's a legal stream, but, but that's good, good info there. Uh, Nick says, hey guys, thanks for doing the podcast. I look forward to it every week. As somebody who didn't grow up playing or watching soccer, I was wondering if you had any suggestions for TV shows, films, YouTube channels, websites, books, etc. to learn more about the tactics, positioning, and just get a deeper understanding of what is actually happening. When you grow up as an, uh, as an, well, when you grow up playing a sport as a kid, you get coached and learn all the basics, but you pick it up as an adult. All this, all this background is missing for me. 
I already enjoy watching soccer, but I think I would enjoy it a lot more if I had a better understanding of what caused a goal to be scored, where that defender was supposed to be, why certain tactics are used, etc. This is something that I definitely think is missing from TV, TV coverage in this country, from what I can tell. Additionally, if you have any suggestions to learn more about the history of the game and fan culture, I'd love to hear about that as well. Kartik, this is right up, your, right, right up to right up your street. Amen, Nick. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that this is part of the reason why there's so much poor analysis of uh, of American players when they play in Europe, and so much poor analysis of MLS, and so so much poor analysis of the U.S. men's national team. I think understanding a positioning sense, particularly of players outside out of possession, yeah. And I know people. It's it's like a dead horse, and I hate to keep raising it, but this is the Pulisic issue at Chelsea and at Dortmund last season. Uh, if there was a greater understanding of that, I think that the analysis would be different, and I think a lot of fans would enjoy what they're watching and understand what they're watching a lot more. Uh, I'm going to say this, Nick. If you want uh, to chat about the history of the game, you can always email me um, or, or contact me via Twitter. The person who is uh, who we're reading a, a, a note from next in the mailbag, uh, Robert Thompson, and I are in consistent touch, and he's another good resource. He's learned a lot recently about the history of the game and has become a, a very invaluable resource for me as well, uh, bouncing off thoughts and ideas. So uh, uh, there's almost a community of us that have developed through this podcast and World Soccer Talk that, that talk to one another. So, uh, Nick, uh, feel free free to reach out. Yeah, and just to throw out some uh, suggestions just for some of the other listeners to you who may be wondering um, about the same question. I would say in terms of uh, positioning and tactical analysis and the history of that and how that has evolved over time, uh, definitely uh, check out Jonathan Wilson, uh, who is a writer uh, for The Blizzard and The Guardian and other places. But uh, he's had a number of uh, really good books in terms of, of that topic. Um, another one about the history of, of soccer and, and from the beginning until current day. It's a big book and uh, it's a fantastic book. It's by David Goldblatt and it's called The Ball is Round, A Global History of Football that I recommend. Um, something I haven't had a chance to listen to, but I've heard some good things about is a podcast series called Soccer 101, which is, I think, by the Totally Football Show. I think it is a to Totally Soccer Show. Uh, check that out. Uh, I've heard some good things about that. And um, I, I hon honestly, honestly, I would say um, watch the TNT halftime analysis of the Champions League games. And uh, when Stu Holden gets up uh, off his feet and and goes to the board and, and talks about tactics and you mean Liverpool against PSG and how the, the teams line up and how they're changing shape, those types of things. Um, he's fantastic at that. That's something that I always uh, learned some things from. And uh, yeah, great question. Great, great question. And, and listeners, if you have any suggestions too on some uh, resources that you would recommend, um, let us know and we'll, we'll share those out on air. Last but not least, uh, Kartik, uh, Robert Thompson, man, he says, Manchester United is probably the highest payroll of any football club, but is playing crap football. So what is their plan? Play more like a team or be better coached? Uh, or or is it to get the checkbook out and buy your opponent's best players? Is this the future of the Premier League? This, this is a, a topic, probably, Kartik, that we probably could spend about 10 or 15 minutes on, at least on this one. Um, I mean, I, to me, it's a similar issue to the U.S. Soccer Federation and how that U.S. men's national team has been run and the people that they're appointing. 
Um, you look at Manchester United, you look at Edward Woodward's in terms of um, the decisions he's making, which is having a huge impact on the team in terms of transfers, managers being selected, those types of things. And they're trying to figure out short-term solutions to a problem that is a long-term problem. Same thing with the uh, the U.S. men's national team, too. It's a long-term problem. This has been happening for a long time. These are issues that have been um, not just in the past two years. This is the, probably the past uh, decade. So so to me, I mean, it's um, you, you change the executives. You get some smarter people to come in to make better decisions, better, better footballing decisions. You have a... You know, an agenda, a uh, a mission statement. You sit, sat, sit down, and have a vision for you, what you want this club to be. And long term, you, you you change that. Um, the U.S. men's national team used to have that Kartik, right? With the uh, speaking of Manchester United and, and managers and um, the Portuguese assistant manager, Carlos Quiros, yeah, right. Had had a plan for the U.S. men's national team to win what? Win the World Cup by twenty twenty. Yeah, 2010 actually, 2010. Uh, but realistically, it would have been 2018. I actually, had a whole conversation with this with Neil Black about Project 2010 with Neil Blackman yesterday from the Yanks are coming, and Kirosh's vision was not put totally in place. The initial parts that were put in place worked, including uh, the the first classes of the residency program uh, here in Florida that were part of uh, national national academy residency program that were part of Kirosh's plan. If you look at the 15 years of that residency, it's now shut, uh, been shuttered. It was the first two classes that produced all the really good players. The Aguchi was the Marcus Beasley's, Landon Donovan's, Bobby Convies, etc. Um, yeah, so there, there's something very, very much uh, like that. Uh, I think um, there is a ongoing debate, and this was part of the discussion, between ideology slash style Rigid, rigidity and pragmatism. There's only if you could classify uh, managers and, and clubs and, and style in, in different places, but I think really if you simplify it, there are, there are two things. There are only two categories. In Greg Burhalter, the United States has hired a stylist. Mm-hmm. They've hired someone with a very rigid uh, footballing ideology. It's a footballing ideology based largely on the time he spent uh, most of his career, actually playing career, in, in the Netherlands uh, around uh, uh, the systems that were influenced by the Ajax way, by, by Michaels uh, and and obviously uh, Cruyff, etc. So he's trying to implement that philosophy in the United States where the level of technical player is very low. Um there's the other category, which is pragmatists. Now, I think when you, you talk about Manchester United specifically, they have gone back and forth. Alex Ferguson, Sir Alex, was able to fuse those two elements, whereas his great rival at the time, Arsene Wenger, was an ideologue. You know, not that diff- different from a Burhalter, a diff- little bit different style, but mm-hmm. not that different. Um, now you've got a situation where they keep bouncing back and forth. They, they started with Moyes, who's very pragmatic, then went to Von Hall, who's very rigid. Actually, same style. But Von Hall's style is the same style as Berhalter's style. Very, very similar. Which is why you would see Manchester United with gaudy possession numbers, but not many chances created uh, during the Von Hall era. Then they go to Mourinho, who's the ultimate pragmatist. Uh, and who essentially produces dossiers or has someone produce for him dossiers on every opponent to where then he mixes and matches his his tactics and and player selection to uh, that opposition instead of just having a a best 11 that he sticks with. Then now you go to Solskjaer, who I think is... I'm not sure what he is. So, uh, and then at the top, you have a biz, uh, a guy in Ed Woodward who is more concerned about the bottom line, very similar to the U.S. Soccer Federation and, and the way they view things. So, I think uh, Robert, to, to to kind of address your question, I, I think uh, um, 
this is the future of the Premier League is that instead of actually trying to fit players into um, a, a playing style, you buy uh, the the best players that your opponents may want. Chelsea started this under Mourinho. They bought Villian because Spurs wanted him. They bought Mo Salah because Liverpool wanted him. Guess what? He ended up at Liverpool anyway and is one of the best players in the world. But uh, that, that was their thought process in in some of their their buys was, uh, and then eventually, you know, you could argue uh, they bought Jorginho because Manchester City wanted him. Um, uh, that wasn't under Mourinho, but this is kind. Of, and he bought Lukaku because Chelsea wanted him. Right? This is the way Manchester United and Mourinho have um, have now recently behaved in Chelsea under Mourinho, etc. Um, so I think that's part of uh, the footballing uh, evolution now in terms of buying. The, the best players uh, from your opponents, sometimes you realize that they don't fit your style, but they fit your opponent's style. I think in the case of Harry Maguire, it's still early returns. It's eight matches. But Leicester's back four, anchored by Johnny Evans, former Manchester United player that they never attempted to buy back, mm-hmm. uh, and for whatever reason let go, have not missed a beat without Maguire. They look yeah. exactly the same under Brendan Rodgers as they did last season. Manchester United, Maguire doesn't look the same player in Manchester United system. So sometimes this is a, a poison chalice to just be uh, p- uh, pitching players from other clubs because you want to get them off that team. I'm not saying that was necessarily the case with Maguire, but I think Man United and Leicester are really in head-to-head competition in terms of uh, finishing fourth in the Premier League. And uh, Leicester seemed the better for it. They have a, a clear style and identity under Brendan Rodgers, clear way of playing football. Uh, the Turkish center back, whose name escapes me, has just slid in, slotted in for Maguire. No problem. Mm-hmm. No difference. Yep, yep. Yeah, and a lot of the decisions that Manchester United have made recently have seen a bit more about shirt sales, more about... Uh, really kind of um, just the last almost like a panic buy where it's Alexis Sanchez spending all that many on, on a player oh yeah I mean just, just so many bad decisions there and um, ah. let's see again they bought Alexis Sanchez I think because they didn't want him to go to Manchester City so this is the reactive nature of again buying players based on who the opposition that was Mourinho also so he did it with Salah he did it with Willian uh, though uh, Salah obviously eventually ended up at the club that wanted him and is now uh, one of the top five or ten players in the world but uh, and he did it with Lukaku and he did it with uh, we just mentioned Sanchez so it's it's also a Mourinho thing yeah yeah speaking of which uh, Sunday Kartik uh, Liverpool against Manchester United at Old Trafford and uh, this is a place that Liverpool's always had a difficult time getting uh, uh, three points from so this one will be an interesting one yeah, to watch yeah. for sure. I don't know that they're going to have that much difficulty this time I would be stunned I, I expect them um, I expect them to yeah. cruise yeah all right, listeners, so we want you to have your say. You can always reach us via email through web at worldsoccertalk.com as well as facebook.com slash worldsoccertalk and on Twitter at worldsoccertalk. Plus, of course, you can post your comments on worldsoccertalk.com. My name is Christopher Harris. I am joined, as you know, by Kartik Krishnayer. And Kartik, uh, where can listeners uh, find you each week on social media if they want to catch up and see why the podcast wasn't released last week or, or, or other things? KKFLA737 on Twitter, uh, and feel free to DM me if you want to get in touch with me. And as I mentioned, Robert, who we just uh, uh, who we just read a, a note from about Manchester United, I interact with him at least once a week. Uh, so um, I'm in touch with a lot of our listeners and, and uh, encourage you if, you if you have questions or just want to start a dialogue uh, to, uh, to, to ping me. 
Thank you for listening. You can get a new episode of the World Soccer Talk podcast every Thursday. Every episode is released on SoundCloud, Spotify, Pandora, YouTube, Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, Audioboom, Overcast, and of course, worldsoccertalk.com. If you like the show, share it with your friends on social media and give us a review on iTunes. And Kartik, the international break is over. Uh, Club soccer resumes this weekend. You've got the uh, MLS playoffs. You've got the Liverpool Manchester United. Uh, I mean, you got the championship back again, and um, all is good with the with the world. So, uh, what should they do? Enjoy your football.